Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Promise Center's weekly podcast. We hope that this message blesses you and encourages you to take your next step in following Jesus. As always, feel free to check us out at www.thepromisecenter.com for more information on our church, what we're doing to make a difference in Sonoma County, and how you can partner with us. God bless, and enjoy this week's message. The Father's house. Uh, all right, are you ready for the word this morning? Someone say yes. You are alive and well. You worshiped better than the 9 o'clock service. Come on, you sounded better than the 9 o'clock service. I gave them the rules of engagement. You don't even need them. I just told them they needed to be verbal and engage with me and preach with me because that's the kind of church I come from. You guys already get it. You've already been given amens, come on, that's good, cheers, hand claps, high fives, preach it, white boys. Whatever you got in you, come on. Let's go with it today. You up? Brilliant. All right, here's what we're going to do. I want to talk to you for a few moments about the journey of faith that many of us find ourselves on. What's your name, sir? Bruce. How old are you, Bruce? Do you mind? You're 77 years old. How long have you been following Jesus? Finally, I caught up. I love that. I love your bow tie. I love watching you worship. I know that we're supposed to like close our hands and focus on Jesus, but I loved watching you worship uh, during, uh, during the worship service. Uh, and uh, Bruce, who's been on the journey for a little bit here, uh, by the way, uh, you could probably teach all of us in the room a few things about following Jesus. So everyone's going to come to you afterwards, and they're going to ask you for your wisdom. Uh, along the way. But uh, if you ask Bruce, he'd probably tell you as he's been on the journey for a bit uh, that as a Christian, you've been called to live a life of faith. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Uh, in fact, it required faith for you to even say yes to Jesus at the beginning when, you know, for the first time you heard that he bowed, but yet you loved you and you decided to give your life over to someone that you'd never meet, someone you'd only hear stories about, but yet you felt in your heart that it was true and that he is who he, who he said he was and that he'll do what he said he'll do, and it took faith to say yes to that. And then that isn't where it ended. In fact, every single day that you're on this journey requires faith. Uh, faith to step out and give for the first time. Step, faith to step out and serve for the first time. Faith to share the love of Jesus with somebody at your work or your family member. Every, every step along this journey requires faith. The Bible says in, in the book of Galatians that the life that you now live is no longer lived in the flesh, but it's lived by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Now, not only did it require faith for you to say yes to Jesus, but often this journey of faith will require you to do things that seem irrational, illogical, impossible, expensive. Sometimes he'll tell you to do things like plant a church in a city that seemingly doesn't want a church. And you'll have to make a decision, am I going to stay in my safe little bubble called Christianity, or am I going to step out and do the very thing that God's called me to do? That's my story, but you have your own. Whether it's a business, whether it's a, a relationship that you find yourself in now, you've been asked to do some crazy things all because of this word called faith. Yet, though the Bible tells us to live a life of faith, you've probably also discovered by now that you have an ever-present enemy to your faith. And often, many of this and never step into the fullness of what God has for us because of this battlefield, this enemy we find ourselves up against, a word called fear. Four-letter F word that every single Christian in the room will face. As long as you're on this planet, as long as breath is in your lungs, you will be fighting this battle of faith versus fear. And both of those two entities have a voice, don't they? But both of them are constantly vying for your attention. Faith says one thing, fear says the other. Faith says, I'm going to give in the offering for the first time. 
I heard that the Bible said that if I trust God with my finances, he'll provide for all my needs. Fear says I barely have enough to pay my bills as it is. I'm $50,000 in debt. I lost a lot during the fires. There's no way that I can even afford to give, so I'm going to cling to what I have. Faith says step out. Share the love of Jesus with your coworker. Pastor just told us to invite someone to the Easter services. I'm going to do it. I'm going to finally open up my mouth and tell somebody that I love Jesus and I want them to come to church with me. Fear says they've always rejected the gospel. Why do you think that they're going to change their, their mind all of a sudden because you invited them to church? You might as well salvage the relationship, keep things safe, and keep your mouth shut. Faith and fear, always speaking a contradicting language. And if you're not careful as a Christ follower you will find yourself being governed and mandated by the fear instead of the spirit of faith that God has placed on the inside of each one of us. Living safe, living quiet Christian lives, and then ultimately graduating to heaven one day and being forced to watch the DVD of what life could have been if we had said yes to what Jesus was asking us to do. I don't know about you, but that's not how I want to live. I do not want to live a safe Christian life. I don't want to end up in heaven and see what could have been if I had taken more risk, if I had done what God had asked me to do. No, I want to live the life of faith that God has called me to live. But if we're going to do that, church, we must understand how to combat this ever-present enemy called fear. we got to know how to overcome it. So that's my hope and my prayer today over the next couple of moments, that, I, that we would be equipped by the Word of God to overcome fear and to live the life of faith that God has called us to live. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1. We're going to read one scripture this morning, very simple, and, uh, and then we'll take it apart and, and, and preach through it a little bit. Um, before we read it, though, let me encourage you to do something with this, this Bible verse. I don't want you to just hear it today in a sermon. I want you to own it. In fact, I want you to memorize this scripture this week. Uh, when we were youth pastors, we used to tell our students all the time that one of the greatest weapons they have as a Christian is the memorization of God's word. Because the second they can begin to declare the word of God over a situation, they wield a weapon that the enemy cannot stand against. The word of God is more powerful strategy than your wisdom, than your self-control. Only the word of God will overcome your adversary. That's why the Bible says it's like a sword in the spirit. Jesus, when he comes back at the end of days, there's like a sword coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God. It's the greatest weapon you've got. And listen, let me just offer this up to you. This book does you no good as long as it's bound between leather and sitting on your bookshelf. The second it gets into your heart is when it begins to do work in your life. I put it like this to our students. You know, your heart is a clip. This is the ammo. You can load this, the clip in your heart and you can use that ammo on the enemy anytime you want. Okay, four of you got that. Let's try it this way. Um, let's pretend you are a single person. Uh, how many single people in the room? Look around. We call those options. Okay, put your hands down. Uh, sorry, that was way offside. Uh, let's say you're single in the room and you go over to somebody's house and it's late at night and you're watching Netflix. He's got both hands still up. My God, my man, that's right. It's like, I'm leaving with a lady today. Let's go. It's late at night, you're watching Netflix. It's getting past midnight. Nothing good happens after midnight, you know that. Lights are down, all of a sudden the hands start to wander. In that moment, you are not likely going to go to the Word of God and say, I wonder what the Bible says about what we are doing right now. No. In that moment, it's too late. There is no taking place. It's too late to refer to the Word of God. You better have something hidden in your heart. Something that says, you know what? 
There is no temptation except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful. And even though I'm being tempted, he's going to provide me a way of escape so that I can stand up underneath this situation. Jezebel, go home. I'm going to serve Jesus. I'm going to bed. Come on. Okay, now we're on the same team. So I just needed an example to bring it all together. Second Timothy, we've got to start preaching soon. Second Timothy chapter 2, 1. Second Timothy 1, verse 7. Here we go. Ready? For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. You're already reading it with me. Come on, you're going to memorize it this week. You might as well do it together. One, two, three. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. Come on, if you're going to take notes this morning, we will title this chat, It's Just a Shadow. It's just a shadow. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to get in. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for this church. I thank you for its name, the Promise Center. God, there are so many people in the room today that walked in with unanswered promises, things that they're still waiting for, things that they're still hoping for. But here we are in your presence, the very place where we, we become assured of the fact that everything you said about us is true. Every promise you've made to us is yes and amen according to your word. And as it pertains to fear this morning, I thank you that your promise is that you are the prince, the reality that you rule over our hearts, that you rule over our lives. And I pray that the reality of this scripture would get off the pages and into our heart today. That we would not leave this place afraid, but we would leave this place filled with power, with love, and a sound mind. No matter what situation we're walking through, that we would be convinced that fear is a liar. You were truth, and you would change us by your presence and by your word from the inside out as we leave this place today in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen, amen. Let me ask you this morning, uh, how many of you guys have ever had anything stolen from you? You've been the victim of theft. Wow, way more than last service, okay? Clearly, you guys are the easy targets. Last, ask the last service for advice. No, what did they take from you? Talk to me. Money, car, cell phones. What's that? Car, power tools. Sorry about that. It's pretty tragic. A hat. Also terrible. Awesome. Uh, I've had a number of things stolen from me in life. Uh, oh, no, we're done now. No more. Okay, thanks. <laughs> we're moving on. A uh, number of things stolen from me in life. Uh, I, I mentioned last service I had a necklace stolen from me when I was younger. That was like this really awesome, like huge silver chain with a cross on it. My grandfather, Italian man, gave it to me. Wore it around every single day, and then magically one day it disappeared. And my friend showed up a few days later with the same necklace that his grandfather gave to him. So that was awesome. Uh, I had a wallet stolen from me in Oakland. Uh, I, I, which I know is no surprise. Uh, and then I had someone try to steal a car from me not too long ago. Uh, I, I went to the dry cleaners, and I left my car running when I pulled it right in front of the uh, dry cleaners. Yeah, dumb, dumb thing to do, but I, I was like, it's going to be a short trip. It'll be fine. So I left it there for 45 seconds. Go in, drop off the dry cleaning, come back out, and when I get out there, my car is gone. I'm looking around, and I, as I look around, I see my car driving across the parking lot, and the windows are down. And, and there's a guy driving, so I yelled at him. I'm like, hey! He stops the car. He looks over at me. He's like, oh! Is, it, is this your car? He said, it's not yours. He said, I, I noticed it was rolling back in a parking spot, and so I wanted to take it to a safer part of the parking lot so that it would be, you know, do you want it back? And I'm like, yeah. And so he got out of the car. It was the weirdest interaction I've ever had with a criminal in my life. I just got my car back and drove away. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Uh, but the, the worst thievery I've ever experienced in my life uh, was a couple years ago uh, during the summer. 
Uh, end of summer, all the kids are back in school. My kids are homeschooled, and so uh, don't judge us. Uh, and so, like three, like two homeschool kids, like, <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> you always know the homeschool kid because they're like kind of quiet and sort of reserved, like, woo, homeschool. <laughs> anyway, not my kids in Jesus. All the kids had gone. We're going to this this uh, water slide park at the end of summer, uh, and we figured no one was going to be there because all the kids had gone back to school. Uh, it was a Monday. And we pulled up to this water slide park in Roseville, California, and uh, it turns out all the schools were out, and it was the last day the water slide park was opened. So the place was packed. So we're driving around trying to find a parking spot, can't find anything. Finally, we find this dirt parking lot like across the highway uh, near this creek, and we figured, okay, there's other cars here, decent place to park. We'll just leave the vehicle here. Parked the car, took out as much as we could. Uh, My wife took some cash out of her purse and the car key and some snacks and packed the towels and all that. And then she left her purse in the back seat, uh, kind of tucked behind a seat there where she thought no one could see it. And so we go across the street. We play at the water slide park all day. Uh, I busted her out last service. I'll do it again. My wife, like, loves water slides. She's like a freak for roller coasters and water slides. Uh, Me, not so much. So I hung out in the kiddie pool with the kids all day long, uh, which we all know is nothing more than a glorified toilet. Yes. So... uh, by the time we finished, 5 o'clock, I'm like, I got to get out of the toilet. Let's go out to dinner. And uh, so I go across the street, go to get the car, walk up, and notice that the back window has been completely shattered. And uh, at first I thought, okay, maybe someone just kicked a rock up and it broke the window. But quickly we realized, no, no, they, they broke into the car and, and the purse is gone. Uh, if you've ever had your purse or your wallet or your money stolen from you before, you know, like, immediately your head just companies telling them, like, I, I'm trying to, like, take inventory, what was in the purse, start calling the insurance companies, telling them what happened, calling credit cards, realizing that thousands of dollars has already been charged up by retailers around the area, and just all this garbage for, like, a, an hour and a half. And finally, after I've been stressed out of my mind, my wife's like, we just need to go get dinner. Let's just chill out. So we go to get dinner. Uh, dinner finishes. We've all sort of settled down a little bit. We get back in the car. We're driving about an hour home, about halfway there. Uh, my wife just starts crying in the, in the seat next to me. I'm trying to be a good husband, and so, you know, I'm consoling her. I'm like, yay, it's okay. I know you shouldn't have left your purse in the back seat. And <laughs> she's like, no, you idiot. I just realized what was in my purse. I said, well, what was in your, in your purse? She said, well, my, my wallet was in there with my ID, and my ID has our address on it. And, and next to my wallet were my, my house keys. And so this thief... He has our address, and I say he, could have been her for sure, equal opportunity. But he has our house keys and our address. He could be at our house right now. And immediately my mind starts racing. I'm like, what if they're taking my car? What if they're taking our stuff? What if they come in the middle of the night and they start messing with our kids? And so I'm freaking out. So I do what every uh, logical man my age would do. I call my parents, uh, (laughs) who live about a mile away. And I said, Daddy, you home? He said, yeah. So take Someone's probably at my house right now stealing everything that we own. I need you to do me a favor. And he's like, what you need? So take your gun, go to the house, just do whatever God tells you to do. He's like, all right. <laughs> all the NRA people, yay. Uh, <laughs> so we pull up about 30 minutes later. The place is, uh, it's pitch black outside. And I'm expecting to see lights on, you know, spotlights in the front. My dad just standing there in front of my house, like keeping guard of everything. Not what I saw. Every light in the house was turned off. My dad's car was nowhere to be found. Like, it's pitch black outside. I'm like, oh, my, what happened? So I open up the garage, and I go into the house as the man that I am. Is anybody home? You know, just real timidly. (laughs) 
And as soon as I walk in the door, a light turns on. My dad is sitting on my couch with a gun on his knee pointed in my direction. I'm like, what's the matter with you? Where's your car? Why are you sitting on my couch with a gun? He's like, well, I parked the car around the corner in case the guy showed up. I just wanted, you know, the element of surprise. I'm like, you wanted to kill somebody tonight. I was kidding, like on the phone. Go home. So I sent my dad home. <laughs> I come from an interesting family. Uh, we go to bed, and every sound, every shadow all night long in my mind is a criminal in my house ready to take everything. Wake up the next morning, get back on the phone with the insurance companies, just chaos of getting credit cards and everything sorted out. In the middle of all this, the Holy Spirit speaks to me. God says, hey, hey son, uh, that thief, they might have stolen your stuff, but you let him have your peace. They might have taken your belongings, but you let him have something that was not rightfully his to take. You let him have your peace. See, see, I had no control over whether or not someone would break into my car, take my wife's purse, charge up our credit cards. No control over that. I had no control over the situation I found myself in, yet I had complete control over the condition of my heart, over the peace that the Holy Spirit has given me as a believer in Jesus, and over the places I allowed my mind to go. I gave him something that was not rightfully his to take. And you know the irony of the whole situation? I had no reason to be afraid. I had no reason to worry. Not only did he not break into my house, but after the insurance company gave us back all the money to replace all of our belongings and we purchased everything we needed, we actually made $1,000 on the deal. I'm like, you robbed me. And I still made money. Like, this is how we do it. Like, yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a casualty. Go back and do it. I still lost something in the midst of it. I never got to go back and do it all over again and cling to the peace that is rightfully mine to cling to regardless of the situation I find myself in in life. I lost my peace. Now, I want to propose to you this morning that every single person in this room is the victim of a similar crime. Maybe your car hasn't been broken into, your purse hasn't been stolen, your wallet's secure. But every one of you has encountered the thief that is coming after your peace. The Bible says in John chapter 10 that you have a real enemy. His name is Satan. And it actually goes on to tell you his job description. The first aspect of his job description is to steal. To steal, to kill, and to destroy. You have an enemy, and he is a thief. And let me remind you today, he's not after your car. He's not after your purse. He's not after your stuff. He wants to take your peace. He wants to rob you of this life of faith that God has called you to live. Let, let, me, let me peel back the curtain on the spirit for just a moment and explain to you how all this Christian stuff works. You've been called to live by faith. Faith is the very vehicle that keeps you moving forward in the things of God. It's by faith that you said yes to Jesus. It's by faith that you step out and do the things he's called you to do. It's by faith that you invite a coworker to come to church and they get saved. It's by faith that you step out and plant a church or start a business. And so the enemy needs the dollars and you sow it into the kingdom. All of that is by faith. It requires faith. So the enemy knows if he can rob you of your faith by keeping you afraid, if he can steal your peace, then you are paralyzed and the world never gets to see the other side of your yes to Jesus. The coworker doesn't get saved. The business isn't built. The church doesn't take place. 
So he tries to keep us paralyzed in fear. And let me, let me just remind you today, even though you have an enemy that's come to steal from you, he's not even a very good thief. Like, honestly, when you think about it, compared to the goodness, the vastness, the power of your God, he's a pretty puny adversary. The problem is he doesn't have to be that coy or that good or that cunning because as Christians, many of us have made ourselves easy targets when it comes to our peace. We leave it on display like a purse in the backseat of a car waiting for the thief to come and take it. Let me put it like this. Uh, let's pretend today you have $100, and you take that $100, and you set it out on the curb after church. You say, hey, you just hang out there. I'll be back later. Pick you up. You go about, where are we going to lunch, babe? Oh, she can't remember. Okay, we're going to go to lunch. M8, you too. You should go get your kid. Okay. <laughs> Is that our kid? She's going to check. Okay. You take your $100, you put it on the curb. And lo and behold, you go to lunch somewhere awesome in Santa Rosa because you have great food. You come back hours later, and lo and behold, your $100 is gone. Now, did somebody steal the money from you? Yeah, they stole the money from you. Does that make them a good thief? No, it made you an easy target. You just left it on display for them to take at will. And that's how many of us as Christians treat our peace. How's that, Pastor Tim? Let me give you a few examples. Maybe not you, but in our church, I know that there are people who are deathly afraid of the condition of our nation and where it's headed. The leadership, the politics, you name it. But rather than doing what the Bible commands us to do in Romans 13, which is to pray for our leaders, pray that the Holy Spirit would arrest their heart and they would make godly decisions, instead, they get home from work, eat dinner, sit down on the couch, and they watch hours of the news, which is nothing more than spoon-feeding fear to you about the future. Well, this side hates this side, and that side's going to do this. And then they wonder why they're afraid about the condition of our nation. Well, you're, you're spoon-feeding on fear. Of course you're afraid. I met a guy a couple days ago who, who was telling me he had nightmares every single night, and he couldn't understand why, and call it the Holy Spirit or just a duh, no-brainer. I'm like, hey, do you, like, what do you watch? And he's like, oh, I love scary movies. I'm like, well, you're an idiot. <laughs> you can't watch things about demons and then not have demons mess with you at night. Like, it's, how have we not put these things together? I, I know people who are afraid about whether or not their marriage is with their spouse because it's on the rocks, but rather than going to counseling and seeking wisdom and praying together with their spouse and fasting and do whatever it take, doing whatever it takes to, to fix it, they sit down with their messed up hairdresser or their friend that's been divorced four times asking for advice while they're like, well, your marriage isn't going to make it. I, oh, my God, I remember my last marriage was just like that, and we didn't make it. Of course you're afraid. You cannot feed on fear and then wonder why you have no peace. Listen, this is not how God has called us to live. He's not called us to live like the rest of the world or to trust in the other sources in this world. The Bible says in John chapter 14 that Jesus gave you a peace that this world cannot offer. And if the world can't offer it, then the world cannot take it from you. There is a peace that surpasses understanding. There's a peace that is constant regardless of your situation. But to find this peace, you got to know how to fight fear you got to know how to overcome this ever-present enemy that you face. So, so let me ask you, what is fear? What is the enemy's strategy against you? Uh, Sun Tzu, in the book, The Art of War, he writes, If I knew my enemy's strategy, I could go to a thousand battles without fear. If I knew how the enemy was going to fight, then I can strategize accordingly to make sure that I fight better. So, so how does the enemy use fear? Well, well fear 
defined by Webster's Dictionary is this. Something bad is going to happen. It is an emotional response to a perceived threat. If I perceive that something bad is going to happen, then I respond emotionally. I'm fearful. I'm anxious. I'm afraid. Uh, my pastor, I heard him preach one time in a brilliant message. He preached that fear is nothing more than borrowing trouble from tomorrow and living in it today. God, so powerful. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. I heard another preacher say one time that fear is nothing more than misapplied faith. Faith is believing the best about tomorrow. Fear is believing the worst about tomorrow. It's faith. You just put your faith in the wrong source. All very profound and brilliant thoughts about fear for sure. But, but I don't know that they truly capture the definition of fear, the strategy of fear. I think they might be the fruit of fear, but not the root of fear. And if we're going to deal with fear once and for all, and you're going to leave this place filled with peace, you can't clip the fruit from the branches because it will grow back in the next season. You've got to get down into the root system of that tree and yank that sucker out so that you never deal with it again. So what does the Bible say about fear? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Paul looks at his protege, Timothy, and he says, Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power love and a sound mind. Fear is not an emotional response to a perceived threat. Fear, it's not borrowing trouble from tomorrow. It's not misapplied faith. According to scripture, fear is a spirit. It's a spirit. And it's imperative that as a Christian you understand you are fighting a spirit and not something worldly or natural because if you don't understand what you're fighting, you won't know how to fight it. It's a spirit. It's someone, not something. In our world, we are obsessed with the idea of fighting fear in the natural realm. We fight it with, with worldly weapons. But the Bible tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. That our weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They don't make sense. See, what many people have done when they're afraid and when they're anxious is they've, they've gone about the natural means. Okay, uh, let me take a pill and my fear will go away. Let me go to a counselor and I will counsel my fear away. Uh, let me drink myself into a stupor and hopefully I'll forget about it. Let me do some drugs and maybe it will all go away. Let me get on Facebook and make the rest of the world miserable as I tell them about my problems on Facebook. And hopefully then my fear... Okay, glad that you're doing all those things. Not really, but how's it working out for you? Probably not well. You made the rest of the world miserable with your post. You're hopped up on drugs and you can't quit. And you're paying a whole lot of money for counseling. Like, I'm not suggesting those things don't work for a season. Counseling's important. Counsel yourself and serve their purpose. But listen, peace does not come in pill form. You cannot counsel, counsel yourself into a place of peace. There is only one source for peace. And the Bible makes it very clear that it is in Jesus and Jesus alone that we find the peace we're looking for. So if you're going to fight a spirit, those things are not going to work forever. You have to begin to fight in the spirit against the spiritual enemy. So, so how do we fight in the spirit against this thing called fear? Let me offer you a couple of no-brainers. These four, they're going to rattle off quick, but you must do these if you're going to overcome fear. Number one, you have to pray, you have to read your Bible, you have to memorize some scripture, and you have to worship. That was four. I said number one, but I, there was four if you didn't catch that. Worship, pray, Bible, memorize some scripture. And I know that that's uber basic, okay? And you're like, really, Pastor Chadwick, you brought this guy to like tell us to read our Bibles. 
If we did it, maybe we wouldn't have to talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you got to do these things. You got to pray because the Bible says in Philippians that don't, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And then the God of peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You got to read the Bible because it says in Ephesians chapter 5 that our minds are washed by the power of God's word. If your mind is wandering places and it's afraid and anxious about tomorrow, then you need to give it a bath. And this is the only thing. Chronicles, actually, your mind. You need to worship. Because as you see in Scripture, 2 Chronicles, Acts chapter 9, when the people of God are surrounded by enemies that they cannot beat themselves, they begin to worship God, and He goes out and does battle on their behalf. And you need to memorize the Scripture, like we said earlier, because once it's in your heart, you can deploy that weapon on your enemy, and you can win in any circumstance in life. You must do these things. If you are not, I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but it's like leaving a $100 bill on the, on the curb and wondering why it's gone three hours later. You gotta do those things if you want the peace of God. But but let me offer a fifth, which is less of a, a weapon and more of an understanding that every believer in the room must be convinced of if we're truly going to overcome fear and live in peace. And that is this. If you're gonna live in peace, if you're gonna overcome fear, you must understand who's with you. You have to know who has your back. I would assume, you know, you're a dignified bunch here at the 1115 service. So there's probably not a whole lot of people in here that get into fights on a regular basis. Okay. <laughs> but if you're not a very big guy or gal and you find yourself talking trash often, you learn very quickly in life that it's really not about your size or your skill. As long as friends that are bigger than you have your back, you can say whatever you want to say. Uh, I remember when I was in 10th grade, and my sister was in 5th grade, sophomore, 5th grade girl. And uh, she would come home every single day from school, and she would complain about this boy in her class that was just always talking trash to her. And it didn't seem like much, but it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And one day, my friends and I, after school, were sitting around the, uh, the kitchen table uh, doing what every good high school boy does, eating goldfish and drinking Capri Sun after school. It was a good day. And... Uh, I kind of want to go back to that sometimes these days. Uh, anyway, uh, sitting around the table, and my sister comes barreling through the front door, and she is weeping. And she begins to tell us about this, this, this boy saying some stuff in front of her class that no young man should ever say about any young lady, especially my sister. And so I said, hey, sis, don't worry. Uh, me and my friends, we're going to go to your school tomorrow, and we're going to take care of business for you. Now, tenth grade kid, fifth grade boy, but we didn't process all that at the time. So... <laughs> I said, all you got to do is you got to get him off school grounds, and then we'll take care of the rest. <laughs> so she's like, okay, done. Next day, uh, school bell rings, and here comes my sister. There's like a berm separating this uh, park from the school. Here comes my sister uh, bringing this young man over the berm to us. And the description she'd given me made him sound like he was a really overdeveloped fifth grader, like hair on the chest, you know, like big burly guy. Not at all what came waddling over the berm that day. A little four-foot, my mortal enemy, just... <laughs> You know, walking around. Didn't matter. He was my mortal enemy at that moment, so we were going to take care of business. So he comes over. I said, hey! He stops, deer in headlights, look at me. So what's your name? Just starts shaking, doesn't even tell me his name. I said, listen, your name doesn't matter. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I understand you've been saying some stuff to my sister that no boy should be saying to my sister. And if I so much as hear as you look in her direction... Ever again. Me and my friends, we are coming to your house. We're going to bind you. 
Have I made myself clear? And he takes off. And we walked away from that scene like we had just defeated every gang in all of Vacaville. We're like, yeah, we punked that fifth grade kid. Yeah, what's up? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stupid, right? But I'll never forget how my sister walked away from that situation. My little four-foot-nothing sister walked away like this. Why? Because it wasn't about her skill or her size. It was about who had her back. As long as someone bigger than her had her back, as long as someone more powerful than her enemy had her back, then there was no reason for her, right? Be afraid. Listen, you've known this truth since you were a child, right? This is not news to anybody in the room. Like, what did you do in the middle of the night when you had a nightmare and you were afraid? You ran to your parents' room because if I could get around people that were bigger than me and stronger than me, then I don't have to be afraid. When you're camping and it's the middle of the night and you have to go to the bathroom and you know that every serial killer on the planet is waiting in the trees, what do you do? You grab a friend and you go to the bathroom with that person because if you're not alone, then you don't have to be afraid. If you know that someone is greater than what you're facing, someone with you is more powerful than what you're facing, then you do not have to be afraid. Listen, listen. 365 times in your Bible, consequently one for every single day of the year. In command form, the Bible says, do not be afraid. But in the vast majority of those scriptures, it is followed with a promise. Let me see if you can catch the pattern in Scripture. Genesis 26, the Lord appeared to him on the night of his arrival. I'm the God of your father Abraham. He said, don't be afraid, for I am with you and will bless you. Deuteronomy 31.8, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. 1 Chronicles 28, then David continued, be strong and courageous, do the work, don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord my God is with you. 2 Chronicles, don't be afraid or discouraged, go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord, 46, 20, with you. Isaiah 41, 10, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Jeremiah 46, 28, don't be afraid, Jacob, my servant, for I am with you. Don't be afraid because, oh, come on, because, because he's with you. Aren't you glad that you serve a God that isn't waiting on the other side of your problem or on the other side of your season saying, figure it out and then you can get to me. But in the midst of the problem, in the midst of the pit, even amongst the diagnosis and the lack and whatever it is that you're facing, he calls himself Emmanuel. He calls himself the God that is with you regardless of what you're facing. Don't be afraid because I'm with you. If you know that you have a God It's greater than your enemy with you. You do not have to be afraid. And I think that once you understand God is with you, you can actually begin to see your situation with some clarity. And you can expose the spirit of fear for what it truly is. And as it pertains to the message this morning, fear, it's just a shadow. It's just a shadow. Among the uh, 365 scriptures in your Bible where we're commanded to not be afraid is Psalms chapter 23. And many of you have probably read this scripture before, heard this scripture before, the essence of what day where it's been quoted, but let's just all read it together and see if we can't catch the essence of what David writes here. He said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Doesn't that sound like a peaceful place? 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you're with me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not really death. It's just a shadow. Things are not actually going to turn out the way you think they are. I know what the doctor said. I know what your friends said. I know what the family said. But those things that you're playing out in your mind, they're not actually going to happen the way you think they are. They're just a shadow. You know what a shadow is, right? A shadow is an amplification of an insignificant reality. In other words, it makes things seem much larger than they truly are. Do you know that statistically, 99% of the things that we worry about on this planet will never actually come to pass? What an interesting ploy of the enemy to get us to lose the battle in our minds and consequently never move out in faith doing what God has called us to do when things would never actually turn out the way we thought they would. Um, with me, a shadow. They're not even real. I, I brought um, with me this morning a friend uh, to, 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 to land the plane here and drive this home. Uh, this, is, uh, this is Monkey Boy. And uh, Monkey Boy is uh, my daughter's sleeping companion, and um, I think he's a, a, a Cabbage Patch doll dressed like a monkey. I think that's what it is. Um, now, not really all that terrifying. Arguably, some might think so, but not, not very terrifying. If you were to walk out of the building today and you saw him sitting there on the curb, I doubt that you would scream in terror and run the other direction. Why? Because it, it's a Cabbage Patch doll dressed like a monkey. It's not that terrifying. But, but here's what the enemy likes to do in our life. He likes to thank, take things that's, that, that seem small and insignificant. But then he begins to turn the lights off on us. And as he turns off the lights, suddenly, that very small and insignificant thing <laughs> begins to look much larger. Now, I don't know about you, but if I woke up in the middle of the night and that was on my wall, I would push my wife towards it and run out the bedroom. No, I'm just kidding. This is what the devil does. He takes something small Something that's easy for God to fix. Something that God could in one moment with one word transform. And he begins to cast a shadow on the wall of our lives. So that all of our attention, all of our energy, all of our passion is focused on the shadow. The longer we look at it, the bigger, and bigger, and bigger it seems to get. I think this is where it ends for me. I don't think it's, the, the marriage isn't going to make it. I lost my job again. Like, I'm probably going to lose the house. But where am I supposed to go if, if this doesn't work out? I've already had one failed marriage. I don't want a second failed marriage. I raised my kids in church. I thought that they would, they would serve Jesus, but they're so far gone. What if, 
What if I enter into eternity with that? And all the things that the enemy throws our way, it's we'll do what they look huge. But if in these moments we'll do what David did, if we'll acknowledge, you know what, I might be in a valley right now, but I thank you that it's temporary. I'm not dying in the valley. No, I'm walking through the valley. And there's a light on the other side of this thing. And even though I'm in a valley called the shadow of death, I'm grateful that it's just a shadow. No, Jesus, things are not going to end this way. No, I'm not going to lose everything in this situation. If we'll begin to remind ourselves that we serve a God that is walking through the valley with us, then the light of God's presence will begin to turn on again. And as His light begins to turn on, suddenly it will expose the very spirit of fear for what it truly is. In the spirit, it's a cabbage patch, doll people. It's small, it's insignificant. This is what sickness looks like to Jesus. This is what a broken marriage looks like to Jesus. This is what lack looks like to Jesus. This is what your problem looks like to Jesus. It's nothing for Him. In one moment, with one word, He can change everything. Come on, God has not given you a spirit of fear. You've not been made to mandate your life by something the enemy has lied to you about. No, you've been given power and love and a sound mind. In Jesus' name.